I don't know how many of you can think, or if you have a difficult person in your life, but uh, without raising your hand, think about it for a moment. Is there someone who just bugs you in life? Um, it could be a prof, it could be your roommate, it could be someone sitting in this room and they have no clue that they are your most difficult person, and it could be you yourself. But I tell you, we deal with difficult people all the time. Our son, Paul, um, he's 13. He's the youngest of five children. In fact, I've got Abby, our fourth daughter, down here, front row in high school, and she kind of came along as a prayer partner today. Um, but our son, Paul, the last of our kids, uh, came home two weeks ago, and he says, Mom, I am so bugged by a kid at school, seventh grader. His name's John, and he annoys everybody in the class, the teachers, the kids. And uh, Paul turned around, and on the back of his brand-new fleece was a big thing of red paint from art class, where John had just gone, zip, on purpose. Paul says, Mom, I can't stand him. I said, Paul, what a wonderful opportunity for you. He looked at me and said, what in the world do you mean what a wonderful opportunity? I said, Paul, difficult people in our life are wonderful. Now, now just think about it for a moment. How many people do you think in your class are now saying about John, boy, I need to pray for John. I need to ask God to bless him. Paul said, uh, I don't think anyone's praying for him, Mom. Well, see what I mean, Paul? This is a perfect example, a perfect timing for you to pray for a difficult person in your life. Because you see, I'm abso absolutely convinced that difficult people are needed for our spiritual formation. They are absolutely necessary in our lives. Jesus had difficult people. He had the Pharisees. He had Judas. And yet somehow he used those people in his life to just be what the Father wanted him to be. I have a story today of a difficult person in my life. And to be honest with you, I'm talking about my father, and I want in no way to badmouth him. I dearly love my dad. And I really think deep down, my dad really, really loved me. But it was difficult dealing with a person who was not emotionally close to me. I think all my life, I wanted him to just put his arms around me and just say, Marilyn, I love you. I care about you. And I kept waiting for that, or I kept waiting for affirmation. My story is really a story of not only my earthly father, but my heavenly father. One of my earliest memories of my dad is I was standing in the bathroom, and I'm at the, kitchen, at the bathroom sink, and, and my dad is washing my mouth out with soap. Now, normally when your mouth is washed out with soap, it's because you've said bad words. But in this case, I was crying, and he couldn't get me to stop crying, and so he thought the best thing to do was just to start washing my mouth out with soap. What he didn't realize is that even before that time, I had such a fear of my dad. I wanted to be close, but there was something where I stood back from him. And it wasn't too much longer after that that I was in the car with him riding somewhere in California where I grew up. And it was a deserted road, and again, I was crying. I guess, you know, I was just a crybaby growing up. But he didn't know how to deal with my crying. And so the, th the thought that came to him was, all right, uh, I can't deal with this. She won't be quiet. So he opened the car door, and I had a little, like, little suitcase with me. And he stopped the car, and he put me out on the road 
Now there were no cars coming, it really was a de deserted road. And set my suitcase out with me and drove down the road. Now I can remember as a five-year-old standing there in the road feeling extremely scared, abandoned, left alone, and I just, I did not know if my dad was going to come back for me or not. Obviously he did because I'm here. But it took a while and the message sunk in. I needed to quit crying and I got back in that car and I was pretty shook and it's so, it's so apart still of my memory. Well, things went on and uh, I grew up and I kind of just went more toward my mom. She's one of those very nurturing type of people, loved the Lord. Now my dad, he was a minister. He loved the Lord too. But there was something that we just could con couldn't connect. And it wasn't just with me. It was with my other two siblings as well. And um, so I grew up with my dad always saying to me, Marilyn, you're such a follower. When are you going to be a leader? Or I'd go to piano lessons, and, and I can still visualize this in my mind. He pulls out his wallet, and he takes out his money, and he'll say, this is my last five I have. You know, it just felt like a burden all the time. Or like I could never measure up to what he wanted me to be or do. And uh, I remember every time I went to someone's house, I mean, we, we had King James Bible in that day and age, and uh, he would quote to me this verse, Withdraw your foot from the neighbor's house, lest they grow weary of thee. I mean, constantly, just don't be a burden, Marilyn. Don't be a burden. And I started to think, I must be a burden to my dad if he's always telling me those kinds of things. Well, at that point in my teens, um, again, I was very close to my mom. She had had surgery for cancer, and she had come through it, and um, they said, the doctor said they got all the cancer, so that was good, and, and we had a really great relationship. When I turned 14, it was the summer of 1966, August of 1966, she came to me one day and she said, Marilyn, I'm going back to the hospital for tests. Now, that was just real normal for her to go in, so I said, okay, and she said, I'll be back probably Monday, and I said, great, and uh, she went. She was there for a week and didn't come home. It was starting into the second week, and I said, uh, Dad, when's Mom coming home? Well, she's just, you know, she just needs some, this is literally what he said, she needs some of Grandma's chicken noodle soup and she'll get better. And I said, right, a week in the hospital. I said, Dad, I, I want to go. And UCLA Hospital at that time did not allow 14-year-olds, and you had to be 16. So I said, Dad, please, get permission for me. I, I want to go see Mom. About two weeks later, I was able to go in for the first time, and what I saw shocked me because there was nothing left of her, hardly. She just basically was being eaten away by cancer that we thought had gone. And um, I didn't want to accept it. I didn't want to believe that she was dying. And uh, one day I heard the news that she was coming home, and for me, that was great news. Um, I thought, this means she's, gonna, she's turning around. And she came home one night in September, and she was in uh, our family room lying down on the couch, and she said, Marilyn, I want to talk to you. And I said, okay. And so I went in and sat down along the side of the bed by her, and, and she said, I, I just have to tell you something, honey. She said, I have to tell you that this disease I have isn't going to heal. And um, I said what? And I just threw myself on her, and I just started sobbing, and I said, wait, you can't go. You can't leave me. And I'm immediately thinking, I can't be left with Dad. You know, I, I need you. And I'm saying to her, don't you realize how much I need you? And she said, honey, I, I know, but I, I want to tell you something. You're going to be okay. And she said, 
I want you to know something. I have prayed and asked the Lord if I could please live until you get married and until you have children. But she said, it's not going to happen, honey. And she said, but what I've done is I have held your husband and your children in prayer in my arms, basically, even though I will never hold them in my arms, literally. And, you know, looking back now, this is just a sidelight, my mother had begun to plant such incredible seeds of prayer because, you see, prayer has no boundaries, and they just keep on going and going. And so... I said, this can't be, and never realizing what kind of a situation my own mother was in having to leave children, and yet she was so ready for the Lord, and I saw her not only live as a Christian, but die as a believer, too. And so the next, that night we had to end up taking her back to the hospital, and I, I went back to the hospital with her, and we got her tucked into bed, and I said, okay, I'm not going to school tomorrow, I'm going to come see you in the morning, Mom, so I'm going to see you in the morning, okay? And she said, okay. And so I was getting ready the next morning, and I heard the phone ring, and I heard my dad say, she did? What time? And my mom had gone to be with the Lord. Well, obviously, I was devastated, and I, and I went to my dad, and I did probably what any normal person would do. I threw my arms around him, and I was sobbing. And my dad took me by my arms here and pushed me away, and he said, Marilyn, you just have to go on. You just have to buck up. And you know, all I wanted, all I wanted was comfort from my dad. Well, I overheard my, my dad telling my sister later that day when she came over, Marilyn's just hanging on me all the time, and I don't know what to do with her. I went outside, and I looked up at that blue California sky that day, the September day, and I said, God, I have known you since I've been born. You know, I was raised in this Christian home, but if you're really real, you're going to have to be real to me in a way like you've never been before. And this is what I said, you're going to have to be a mother to me. Because, you see, that was the only kind of love I knew. And if I tried to think of my heavenly father as my earthly father, it was not going to work. And God's peace at that point washed over me. And I didn't have any visible sign. And yet I began to see how God literally came in and was a mother to me. Yet at the same time, I have to tell you that um, the next five years were what I would call the years of neglect. My dad ended up remarrying um, about a year later. He married a, a woman who had never been, um, who had never had children before. So she had never had children, and I'd never had a stepmom before. And um, she seemed pretty nice as my dad was dating her. But um, as she came to live with us, she said, "Now, one of the first things that has to happen is your dog has to go." And I said, "My dog. My dog was eight years old, and I mean, it's this itty bitty five pound Chihuahua." I mean, this dog did not do... I know some people here don't think that's a real dog. But to me, it was. And um, I said, but this is, this is my mother's favorite dog. I mean, the dog adored her, and then I was next in line. And I said, I can't get rid of this dog. She said, well, I'm sorry. I will not tolerate a dog in the house. And I tearfully watched the day that dog was taken out of my life. And I thought, things have got to get better than this. But they went from that to worse. I came home from school, and, and my dad had arranged all of my mother's things in the garage, which is perfectly understandable when you have a new spouse come in. You can't have all your old spouse's stuff around. But I came back from school one day, and everything in the garage was gone. I said, Dad, 
Where, where's mother's things? Oh, I had an antique dealer come in and she took everything. I said, Dad, I didn't even get to choose anything. I didn't even get anything. And there, now there were a few things that were left in closets or, or that kind of thing, but, I, but the bulk of everything was just gone. And I didn't even know what was going to happen. And I went into the house and my brother's clothes were gone that were hanging in the closet. And my, my brother at that time was at Viet, in Vietnam. And I said, Dad, where are Cliff's clothes? And he said, oh, I gave them all away too. I said, why? I mean, nothing, nothing made sense. And uh, I, I just want to stop right here because when my brother came home from Vietnam, can you guess what his first question was? Where's my clothes? And there was one coat that was left in another closet. And just to show you how good God is. It, that coat happened to be in my mother's closet, and for some reason it was just left there. Inside the pocket of that coat was a note that my mother had written and slipped to him in that coat. And it said, Cliff, I know you're walking away from the Lord right now, but I want you to know I pray for you daily and that someday God is going to use you in an incredible ministry. And I know you're going to come back to God. And it was just a love letter. I thought, oh my word, of all that was missing, for God to spare that one coat with that message in it, and my brother turned around to the Lord because of that message in my mom's, in, in his coat pocket. So all the time, even though things were not great, you could see God at work in little places. Well, I turned 16, and um, my dad said I couldn't get my driver's license. Now, maybe that's no big deal to some of you, but I wanted my driver's license. And he said, absolutely no. My stepmom said no. And I begged, I pleaded, I did everything I knew to go get it. I had passed driver's training. You know, I had done all I was supposed to do. No. Um, I was washing the dishes one day with uh, my stepmom, and I said, uh, and it probably wasn't wise of me, but I said, hey, those dishes were my mom's. I remember when some ladies in our church gave that to her as a special uh, birthday present. And that was one of those things that was left, away, left in the cupboard that the antique dealer didn't take. And I'll never forget it. My stepmom turned to me and she said, well, they're my dishes now. And I remember thinking, oh, man, I have lost everything. Nothing felt like it belonged to me. I graduated from high school. They didn't come to the graduation. There was no graduation card. There was no graduation present. Maybe that's true for some of you, too, that are sitting here. But I think for the most part, parents pretty excited at a high school graduation. And uh, it came time to go to college. I was going to be attending Azusa Pacific, and I lived a couple hours away. My parents at that point had moved to another city far away, and they had moved three months from me graduating from uh, high school. And I had said to them, is there any chance that you can just hold off and wait three months? Nope, we have to move now. So I scrambled. I found a family that took me in who did not even know me. And they housed me for three months until I went to college. And I'm ready to go to college. And I have no car. I have no nothing. I have no money. And yet I got accepted to the school. And I called my sister who lived a couple hours away. And I said, is there any way you can take me to college? I, I, I don't have a way to get there. And she said, oh, sure. And so she took me to college. And... Um, I got there and went through scholarships and loans and, and all that kind of stuff because my, obviously my parents didn't have anything to give to me for that. And I turned 19 there. And of course, my parents didn't remember my birthday. There's no card or anything. But a few days after my 19th birthday, I'll never forget it, my dad um, 
called, and I thought, you know what my first thought was? Oh, good, he remembered birthday because you see there's always this expectation maybe he'll change maybe he'll love me maybe he'll accept me maybe I'll be good enough for him and so you're always hoping that this difficult person in your life will change and my dad called to tell me this hey I know it's your birthday and I just want to tell you that you can't come home anymore and I said what do you mean I can't come home anymore he said we have no room for you there's no place for you I said dad I have a job lined up for this summer I need to live at home I mean the people are expecting me to come he said I'm sorry it's the way it is you can't come home and I remember hanging up the phone and not only being so hurt but so angry I mean if I had been a rebellious teen uh, I could see why they wouldn't let me home but but I had so tried to please them I called up my sister and I said, I said, Joyce, I said, I don't understand what's happened. And, and she said, Marilyn, I don't know why dad and stepmom and our stepmom treat you the way they do. But she said, we, you know, your brother and I have talked with them. Nothing seems to help. She said, I, wish, I just want to share something with you. And I've never forgotten this. She said, there's a passage in the scripture that talks about honoring your father and your mother. I said, Joyce, I can't honor them. Look what they've done. I can't honor them. And she said, I'll tell you what, if you don't, you will only hurt yourself. And she said, the root of bitterness will start in. And she said, Marilyn, you won't be a happy person if you do not honor them. And she said it with such tears. And she said, I know it's difficult, but begin to pray that you could honor them. And I'll tell you, I, I found that bitterness is kind of like, like these handcuffs. And... Um, I can get them open. <laughs> so you're holding something against a person, but it's like then you open up the other side and you clamp on the other person with you, and then what you do is you drag them along all day with you. That's what bitterness is. And that root grows up in you, and it defiles not only yourself, but it spills out and touches all those around you. And I said, oh, Lord, please help me not to become a bitter person. But it's really hard. It's really hard to pray that you would honor them. Well, at this point, uh, some of my friends knew I was really just having a rough time. And they said, you know, Marilyn, we really feel that you should go to Israel with us during the summer. And I said, I can't go to Israel. I said, I don't have money to go there. It was through the college, and you could get 10 credit hours. And it was like $1,000 to go. And make a long story short, the Lord brought in a family into my life that said, I hear you want to go to Israel. Here's $1,000. You go. And God began to show me that he was there for me all the time. He showed me that um, even if I, I needed money one day and I didn't have any, and uh, I checked in my little mailbox and I needed, what, 12 pounds and an import tax, or excuse me, a tax for the airport. And at that point... Um, I opened up my mailbox, and in there was a 10-pound note that fluttered out. I had two pounds, but I needed the 10 pounds. And on that note, it said, to Marilyn, love Jesus. And I said, Lord, you're really there for us, aren't you? All the time. You, you have so many. Two Abbeys love Jesus. Two Mandys. Two Jennifers love Jesus. And you're working on our behalf all the time, even when we don't see you. And I began to hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I began to see that I needed God to really work in my life. And, you know, at that, it was soon after that um, I got married. But, you know, that heart wound was still. 
it didn't go away because my dad still kept doing the same things that he did to me. And one day I was in the Word and really got into it. And I try to read even today. Every day I read that the Lord would speak to me through whatever I'm reading. And I was reading in Nehemiah 5, and I was just reading right along, and, and I started laughing because I said, hey, Lord, you know what Nehemiah wants from you? He wants you to affirm him. And he was saying how he'd been the governor for 13 years and this and that, and, and um, he just wanted to be affirmed. And I, it was like I heard the Lord say, that's exactly right, Marilyn, and that's what you want from your father. And you're never going to get it, but you can get it from me. And you know, I was at that point, I was at a crossroads, and I said, Lord, I need to forgive my dad. But it's really difficult, because you see, forgiveness is costly. And the bad news about forgiveness is that people can and will hurt you, they will abuse you, they will abandon you. But the good news is this, and that's God's developed a way for you to cope with that pain, and to not only cope with it, but to overcome it. And he calls it forgiving, and he invites us to do it with him. And forgiveness is pretty important to the Lord Jesus. He knows because it's happened to him. And if any of you were to take like the last couple chapters of Matthew and just look through it, you would see all the things that happened to the Lord. And just quickly, I just kind of put them all down on paper. On his last days, he was slapped, he was flogged, he was stripped, he was mocked. There was a crown of thorns put on him. There was, they took a staff and struck him on the head again and again. They crucified him. They hurled, hurled insults at him. Priests and teachers mocked him. Guards mocked him, beat him, sneered at him, pierced his side, and at one point, all deserted him. Jesus knows what it's like, but what's incredible to me is that Jesus asked for forgiveness in the midst of pain. Did you catch that? In the middle of pain. He didn't wait till he got to heaven and got his resurrected body and said, okay, now I can forgive him. He did it while he was hurting. And you see, it's while Jesus was being rejected that we were being accepted. And the Lord says, Marilyn, I need you to forgive your father. And he knows that for the Lord, forgiveness is instant and complete, but he knows that for many of us, for me, that forgiveness is a process, and it takes time. And God says, are you willing to enter that process with me? Well, it was a few, um, it was probably about two years after I decided I needed to enter that journey of forgiveness toward my dad, even though my dad had not changed, that he called me one day and he said, Marilyn, I'd like to come visit you. And the only reason why he called to come visit me uh, from California to Michigan was because his brother had died and he needed a place to stay. Otherwise, he had never, and my stepmom to this day, had never come to visit us. And I said, Dad, you, sure, come along. He came, he's the same old dad, same old thing. But you know what? I had a new heart. Because even though my dad hadn't, hadn't changed, the Lord had changed my heart toward him. And there was great compassion that I had for him that was only from the Lord Jesus. And mercy and grace that came from the Lord. And my dad left. No thank you, no nothing. Later that night, I received a call from him. And he said, uh, Marilyn, I want to tell you something. I said, oh, what's that, Dad? And his voice was real halting. And he said, um, that was um, the best time I've ever had with you. And then he could barely spit out these next words. He said, and I love you dearly. It's the first time in 32 years that I'd ever heard my dad tell me that he loved me. Now, you know, as great and wonderful as a miracle as that was and is, the fact 
that the Lord had already worked in my heart before my dad said those words. To me, that's the greatest miracle. And you know what? My dad still didn't change after that. He continued to be the same way. But I began to look at him with just newer eyes and to be able to see him as a God who needed, I mean, as a, as a man who needed me to love him no matter what. My time is about up, and I'm, boy, I've got so much to share. And um, I think what I'll do is I'll just go back to um, one of that first story. I'll share two things, and then, then I'll be done. Um, you know that story of me standing out on the road as, as a five-year-old? Two, two Septembers ago, I was back in California, and I was seeing some of those same street signs. Those same, I, I'm not normally back in that place of California very often, and, and I was back there, and I started seeing these street signs. And all of a sudden, that memory was just washing over me. I said, Lord Jesus, why am I feeling so bad? Because you've really took, taken the sting out of so many of those past memories. What's the deal? And the Lord said to me in so many words, because any time I bring back a memory, it's for learning and for blessing, Marilyn. And I want you to go back and I want you to look at yourself again standing on that road all by yourself. And I looked again in my mind's eye and here I see this little girl standing on the road with a suitcase next to her. But this time I see something different in my memory. I see the Lord Jesus Christ standing next to me. He said, Marilyn, I didn't put you out on the road when you were five. But I want you to know I have never left you nor forsaken you. And he gave me the verse from Isaiah that says, I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand and says to you, fear not, I will help you. God's incredible participating presence. I just want you to know, if you're going through a rough time right now, it doesn't have to be with a difficult person, it could be health issues, it could be all kinds of situations, that you have a God who cares about you, who will not leave you, who loves you so passionately, you can't even fathom it. And I close with this last illustration, and Abby, if you can maybe kind of help me out here a minute. I should say, too, before I, Abby, come on, Abby. Um, but the Lord did a neat thing. I, I should just share this because I brought it. See this dish right here? One day, um, my stepmom had me come into the garage after my dad had died, and she says, I want to give you something. And she handed me this dish, and she said, these are yours now. Now, as wonderful it is, as it is to have this, and I'm going to pass it probably down to Abby or to Mandy if the kids don't kill each other, you know, fighting over the, the dishes. And it's kind of hard to split up dishes five ways. But anyway, um, what I'm concerned about the most is what am I passing down to my kids? Am I going to pass down a bitter spirit? What am I going to pass down? And you know what? I only have basically what I call one inch of life to live. Use this tape measure here. Abby, you can go right through it. If you can think of your life as being exactly one inch, after this one inch, everything else is eternity, okay? If Abby could go and wrap this around the world five times, it still wouldn't show you what eternity is. But God says, I've allotted to you one inch of life. What are you doing in it? In this one inch of life, this is when you can ask for forgiveness. For others. This is when you can receive forgiveness for others. This is where you can share the gospel with others. This is the only time, ladies and gentlemen, that you can do that in your one inch of life. 
And God says, what are you doing in that? Because you can have all this rest of the time to enjoy the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't mean just sitting on clouds playing harps. There's going to be incredible. We can't even imagine what it's going to be like out here. I want to challenge you. I know it's rough. I know it's difficult. You've got difficult people in your life. But God wants to work with you. He wants to go through the process with you. That's really where, thanks Abby, where revival starts. It's when it starts with us, with forgiveness. And to be freed up to live that one inch and get the bigger picture. Because see, so many times we get in a stuck point in our lives and we can't move on. And God says, I want to free you up. Father, I thank you so much for this time and for everyone's careful attention. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would take one word or one phrase or one sentence and help apply it to our hearts. Lord, if there's anyone here who's struggling with forgiveness, that they would please write down that person's name and then give it to you. Write down the offenses and say, Lord, help me with this difficult person in my life. Because, Father, you've promised that you're the almighty God, Prince of Peace, King of Kings, and Wonderful Counselor. Help us to get the help that we need so that we can move out of this inch and not be stuck, but we can do great things for you and that we can see that bigger picture. Thank you for giving us the gift of forgiveness. We love you so much. In Jesus' name, amen.